This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Geraldine Dude with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. Now, many of us uh, might have caught some of the incredible pomp on display in London for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. As the commentators continued to say, did you notice, no one does it like the British. It's absolutely fabulous, absolutely. Everybody's jolly, we're all here for the same thing, just to celebrate our beautiful week. Oh, she's kicked off the worst. But will the British keep it up like that? In the near future, will its modern entity, the United Kingdom, even resemble its current character? That prospect of breakdown regularly appears in various commentaries these days in some beautiful writing, going beyond the usual analysis of Scottish and uh, Welsh independence too. It's more about identity. Plus, their cost of living pressures seem considerably more acute than ours, especially around energy price rises. And their Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, that's a whole other story, facing a litany of problems, some of his own making, others not. Will this close cultural relative of ours be recognisable before very long, during all those copious visits that Australians make? Well, our first guest this hour, Tom McTagg, writes for the Atlantic Journal from his home in London. He's penned a number of unmissable articles this year on these issues, including one titled How Britain Falls Apart, a road trip through the ancient past and shaky future of the disunited kingdom. So much to talk about. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, states that have forgotten who they are tend not to last long. You quote someone uh, describing that, looking back at the sudden collapse of the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire in the, la- in the 20th century, and you say the grim reality for the UK in 2022 is that no other major power on earth stands quite as close to its own dissolution. Now, could you expand on that for us, please? Yeah, so I think this, the the odd thing about uh, examining Britain or the United Kingdom is how much of a sort of consensual union it is compared to other countries. If you look around the United States or or Europe, say, it's effectively illegal to secede from those countries. You know, we've seen it in Catalonia. We've obviously seen it with the United States with the uh, with the Civil War, but in Britain. We don't have that. We allow referendums to take place in in Scotland. It's baked into our um, international treaty, the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. All it takes is for 50% plus one of the people who live in Northern Ireland uh, to vote to leave the United Kingdom, and they are guaranteed to leave and to to absorb themselves into the Republic of Ireland. I'm not saying these things are wrong, but it creates a sort of fragility in the Union that is very, very different to France or Germany or the United States or even Australia. So I think what it relies on, what what Britain relies on, is people to, um, is to consent to this Union. So uh, unless they consent, unless they feel British, unless they believe that the country that they live in 
is Britain rather than Scotland or Wales or England or Northern Ireland, then the whole thing is more uh, is more at risk of falling apart. Yes, and you look, you develop it. Uh, you say it's not so much an existential crisis; uh, it's a spiritual crisis. Uh, you, what again? What are you getting at? Yeah, so it's it's this sense of. Um, we have these competing identities in in Britain in a way that I think is quite unique when you look around uh, when you look around the world. In Australia, everybody in Australia is Australian, right? It's a simple it's a simple concept. In Britain, you can be multiple things at the same time. You can be English, Welsh, Scottish, Northern Irish. You can even be Irish and British. Some people would say that they are Irish and that therefore you can't be British. So and, and that all exists within the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom is one of the, the, the last um, states that exists where it, the, the, sort of the nationality is not directly in its name. And that's why it's like almost like a hangover from these old states like the Austro-Hungarian Empire or former land empires uh, in Europe that, of course, fell apart because of the, the growth of nationalism within those at the, at, at the end of the First World War. And we forget that, of course, the United Kingdom came apart under the same pressure of nationalism and the First World War uh, when most of Ireland went uh, became independent. So this thing has happened before. It's not like it couldn't happen again. Um, so, so what it re- what it relies on is this is this um, is this sense of spiritual belief in the thing that you uh, that you live in, and I think that's what's being questioned now. We are you see um, what is very noticeable actually about being in London now during the Jubilee celebrations is that you're seeing the Union flag, the United uh, the the Union Jack, rather than the the St George's Cross of England or the uh, or the Saltire in Scotland, because that is what you usually see now. So that means the English, because I think you also say uh, Britishness might have been unifying, but Englishness is not. Well, yeah, Englishness is, well, it depends where you are, right? So Englishness is not unifying for the whole country, the whole country of the United Kingdom, because you know, by definition, there are parts within that uh, within the United Kingdom that aren't English, that don't feel English. Um, but England, the Englishness is unifying within England. And it is a state that has essentially looked pretty much as is for a thousand years. You know, this is the borders of England, along with, I think, Denmark, are about as stable as you can get the oldest nation in uh, in in Europe, so it's 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 not possible to sort of rub these things out and just create Britain and make everyone forget that this thing England also exists, and that's why there's this sort of multi layered. Um, complex challenge that exists. But I was going back through history recently and thinking of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, and other parts of of the dominions of the British Empire. And only in the 50s, when um, the Queen came to the throne, the Australian Prime Minister described himself as British. He said, I'm British to my bootstraps. (laughs) The the ends of Britain... That's Robert Menzies, and the and the the the, um, the shores of England or shores of Britain do not end in Kent. And the and the the day that she was about to be uh, crowned, uh, the um, the first ascent of Everest took place, and it was the British flag that was put on top of Everest. But it was a New Zealander who got to the top. But in his mind, there was no difference. So you can see there that this sense of greater global Britain 
Well, that disappeared because it wasn't people didn't believe in it anymore, rightly, understandably. But that could happen with within the UK as well. I mean, look, we must talk about your family's road trip holiday called Will Britain Survive? It's so (laughs) good to read. You talk about a stop in a holiday resort called Butlins, gosh, there's a throwback, in Somerset. Tell us about this place and how it compared to others, for instance, the the literary festival you drove to in Wiltshire um, straight after it. (laughs) The contrast is too, it's hysterical. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's an eye-opening it's an eye-opening event because I I we had three months off as a family um, because I um, I had paternity leave to take and we had all of these ideas about going around the world and because of the pandemic all of that became impossible so you 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 could only really stay in in your own country but that that was this great blessing in a way in that it forced us to see these parts of the country that. We'd always like to have seen, but we couldn't, you know, the Isles of Scilly in the far south, the Shetland Islands in the far north. And it gave us the time to be able to try different things. So we were coming up from the Isles of Scilly in um, south of Cornwall, and we were trying to figure out somewhere to go. And we looked on Booking.com and up popped this uh, option of Butlins, which is this sort of very working class, old fashioned um, holiday resort uh, that will often be sort of looked down upon by the, the sort of English middle classes. Um, uh, but it up, up it popped. And I have a, I had then a four-year-old and a, and a sort of uh, under one-year-old. And we thought, you know what, they'll love it, even if we don't. Let's go. Let's try it out. And it's this flashback to a different time in in England, in Britain, my my mum sent me a, um, a a message saying, and she went in, into into the into the loft and she dug out some pictures of herself on her only holiday as a child, was driven down from Birmingham by her parents to this very same Butlins resort, and she pretty much stayed in the same little tiny chalets. Um, that look like um, God. They they're just like sheds that run next to each other down right by the seafront and they haven't changed the beds are tiny that you go into the same um place to get your you sort of like a canteen and you queue up and you get your fried eggs and your fried bread and your fried sausage and your fried bacon and it's the and, and you know this is eye-opening for um my parents were working class but i was definitely brought up in a sort of middle class english household uh taking a holiday to to italy and things like that so this was a sort of a, a real throwback but it was such good fun at the same time you know and and i've just got to you then you left to drive to the um uh, chalk valley history festival in wiltshire (laughs) which is deepest essex it was as if we'd left a camp but butlins for anglo-saxon serfs and arrived at a (laughs) gathering for their norman lords See, I mean, that's always been there in England, of course, but you're implying that there really are such fissures there now that you don't, yeah, you're saying, uh, will this really amount to a sort of uh, impossibly difficult to maintain if if you're going to sort of undermine the Britishness of it all? Well, I think think actually the the class system, um, people in Britain are, comfortable with i don't i don't think in a way that that challenges them so a lot of working people will be very supportive of you know the the monarchy of um aristocratic sounding conservative um 
members of parliament, prime ministers. Um, it's it's not a threat. It's a kind of it's one understands. And what was so interesting for me is I'm I'm from the north of England, so there is also a sort of north south divide here in England, and for me it felt very southern and in a, it was a kind of England that I wouldn't ever feel entirely comfortable in in this in this Wiltshire Valley you know it was you know the poshest sounding guys you could imagine they all wear a kind of uniform of you know think kind of um I don't know, boating regatta outfits, you know, all pastel colours, pink trousers and cardigans and people talking to each other about uh, Wagner and and all this kind of stuff. And it was, you know, it was incredibly pleasant and I had friends there and it was, you know, it was glorious weather and it was strawberries and, and lovely green valleys. But I'm never going to feel comfortable there. You know, that was a realization that hit me. These aren't my people. I'm not going to feel comfortable. They're lovely. Just, but just like Butlins, really isn't isn't going to be where I feel comfortable. And and I think you get at this kind of micro class div- divisions in Britain are are there. And I think I, I often wonder whether foreigners can possibly see it in the way that we do. Oh, well, yes, that's very debatable. I agree with you. But what do you lead to? So, and it really troubled you in a sense, I think, watching all this. But you you say that um, some pe- people believe, especially after Brexit, that it is no longer worth trying to save the UK. Um, they actively prefer the thought, this is your words, of being a less powerful but more settled European country, a greater Holland rather than a mini United States. I mean that's really a big change of of sensibility. Yes, I, I think what is what has happened is it, what I'm trying to do is 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 layer on two competing um, elements here. So if you go out of England and you go into Scotland, or if you go to Wales or Northern Ireland, you see um, you don't see the Union Jack. You see the saltire uh, or the welsh flag or, or or in northern ireland you see all kinds of flags but in 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 scotland is is the is the cornerstone the key the key nation mm. of the union and up there you don't have um the the sense of belonging to a british nation rather than a scottish nation is under is under challenge and i argue that you can't it can't just be kept alive by um, by money, by transfers of money from from London, people have to feel that this is their country as well. And I think what has changed after Brexit, to a certain extent, is that it has heightened that sense because Scotland voted to remain and uh, the whole of the UK voted to leave. So they have a, a sort of legitimate mm. grievance there. But in England, the, the the sense of the sort of patriotic middle classes that felt. British and would say that they were British more than perhaps English, which was maybe the preserve of the, of the working classes. Those middle class people who voted to remain in the European oh, Union have been so disillusioned with the fact that we that we left uh, and the people that are in charge that they feel that this thing that, that they're mm. they're sort of um, I don't know not not so much pride but. Um, what's the word? They're just their sense of, of fairness, and that this thing is, you know, is, is it more actively harmful uh, because it's this pursuit, in their view, of a sort of lost greatness of Britain that they don't feel comfortable with. 
How how interesting. How, uh, and into the brew is Do- Boris Johnson <laughs> in the middle of all this. I mean, you followed him through the course of his career and you're very interesting about him. Um, that You write that scandals have followed him, almost too numerous to note. Thus far, he's surviving. And you've got a quite interesting psychological explanation for this. Do tell. The, the, the reason that he survived... Yes. Well, oh, well, the, the way he conducts himself, he's the minister for chaos, but it's somehow so far, <laughs> I wonder, uh, he's getting away with it. But surely people will get exhausted by it, won't they? Well, yes. I mean, the, 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 Johnson is an incredibly um, uh, powerful politician in that he, um, he, he, he goes against the rules that apply to everybody else. That is, you know, to protect yourself, you must be as controlled as possible. You must... Um, don't let anyone harm you. Say only what uh, you know is on is on script. Johnson is the opposite. You know, he hides a kind of element of ambition and control in this character that is Boris Johnson. That is not so much fake. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. it it's been part of who he is from school. It's the same. There is this incredible consistency of Johnson's character. Uh, in fact, I, I spent a long time researching an episode in his life where he came to Australia when he was younger. And uh, I was speaking to all these professors in um, uh, Monash University. University. It oh, was Monash. Uh, Monash. Monash. Yeah. And, and, and he was there and he taught this class. He, he'd come over when he was, he was younger. And they described exactly the same guy that exists today. He turned up late for lectures, bumbled in. The audience started laughing immediately. He fumbled to get out his laptop. Um, he started reading and he was sort of like all over the place, lost his place. The audience loved it. And, and then reverted to Latin. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and they like it. And and he plays up to the stereotype of the kind of bumbling British uh, sort of, uh, you know, lower aristocrat. And, and people warm to it. So everyone said, that they that they liked him, although there was a sort of sense of shallowness about it. Um, and that is the same guy that you see here. Um, that's the same. That's the same person. People warm to him um, from very early on. But I think what you see within him actually is, if you, if you get closer to him, there is a control underneath. When you when you watch him in an election, he doesn't veer off script he's just much better at staying on script or 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 looking like he's staying on script than others because it's all part of a chaos and with gags and jokes thrown in all over the place um and that's the interest that's the interesting thing about him he's um you know he can i've just got to interrupt you because there's a wonderful line you say uh, as as johnson once put it intelligence is really all about energy that seems to be a very interesting hint Exactly right. In all of Johnson's writings, they're all really about himself. You know, so he'll praise, uh, say, Silvio Berlusconi, and he uses this image of Berlusconi as a, a an olive tree growing through a rock, and it's this this sense that a personality you cannot get, you know, kill this personality. It will force itself through the driest of landscapes and and cling on to life, and that's what he loves above everything he hates sort of patronizing dry boring gray suited characters who lecture him he feels like that's you know these people have been lecturing at him his whole life and he's got to the top and he's got to the top and he's not going to change now that gets him into trouble 
um, but it's also the thing that allows him to pick on uh, on issues and run with them quickly. So we're seeing that over Ukraine now, for instance. Yes. He is he is out in front. He's going to Kiev. And he put money into AstraZeneca when nobody else did too. Exactly. So, so, so when he makes mistakes in the pandemic, you know, so not locking down quickly enough, it has catastrophic uh, effects. You know, we had a higher uh, death rate in the first wave, but he doesn't. He he does not bashful after that. He doesn't sort of go, "Oh my God, I better be cautious the next time." He does it again, and he rolls the dice again, and then he backs AstraZeneca, and and then he hits the jackpot, and then he gets some credit for it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, Tom, look, um, we'll have to have you back. (laughs) There's too much to talk (laughs) about as we watch this year unfold. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tom McTagg, he's a London-based writer for The Atlantic. Check out his writing. It's really good. (laughs) A couple of texts have come in. Give the Brits a break on their special weekend. You're just jealous, says John. Well, look, I am a bit but I will be going there before terribly long, so I will sample it. And somebody else, uh, unnamed, said, knotted hankies and Roman sandals uh, with with socks. (laughs) Those were the days at Butlins, I assume. (laughs) Ah, they are endlessly amusing and um, interesting and provoking. Well, look, up next for Reconciliation Week here in Australia, the story of a peace accord forged amidst the violence of the Channel Country of Queensland in the 1880s. One of the rewards of this Reconciliation Week over the years is the exposure it's brought to aspects of our history that have been either never brought to the public eye or overlooked. What we'll hear now, for instance, from one of our most acclaimed historians is from the latter category. As you'll hear, it tells of events of both horror and heroism, of an important peace treaty between Indigenous Australians and others in Queensland, and of a young female chronicler of the dramatic events around her by the name of Alice Duncan, who should be much better known. Tom Griffiths has fleshed this story out in the latest edition of Griffith Review. His essay is titled... But we already had a treaty, returning to the Debney peace, and he's with me now to illuminate us. Welcome back to Saturday Extra, Tom. It's a pleasure, Geraldine. So what and when was the Debney peace? It was held in 1889, uh, May 1889, in the Channel Country, that sort of vast region uh, where the great rivers of the Cooper, the Diamantina and the Georgina flow into the Lake Eyre Basin, and it's uh, in the heart of Mythica country where Mythica people now have native title. And it was a five-day ceremony that was organised by Aboriginal peoples of the region in the midst of harrowing war. Uh, War had reigned in those uh, decades of the 1870s and 1880s, and both uh, white pastoralists and Aboriginal leaders wanted to bring a truce, a negotiated peace, Mm. and it was um, commemorated and um, solemnised in in a five-day ceremony. And how did it come to light? It's recorded in only, as far as we know so far, in only one place, and that's in the writings of Alice Duncan, later Alice Duncan Kemp, Uh, And she grew up in the heart of that country. She was born in 1901 on the pastoral station uh, Mooraberry. And uh, she was from an early age um, recording uh, 
and asking questions of both white elders and black elders. And she had a very unusual and privileged childhood. She grew up with uh, Aboriginal teachers, mythic of people who loved her and cared for her and who really took her into their kindergartens, uh, trained her in Aboriginal law and culture. And she felt from a very early age um, a responsibility to record uh, their stories, their histories, as well as the stories of her own people, of uh, the Duncans and the Debneys and of other pastoralists who were bringing the, the sort of cattle and sheep industry into that country. So she respected and, and venerated, in a way, both sides of a very difficult um uh, of a very difficult transformative moment but it was, in the but pastoral frontier. It was quite um, accidental, was it not, that it was actually in November 2019, um, there were a range of public consultations around Queensland uh, launched by the Queensland Government talking about their path to treaty initiative. And one was in Birdsville in the Channel Country. And at this meeting, a mythical elder Betty Gorringe just said one thing from the back of the room, you note, we already had a treaty. The Debney piece, it's in Alice's books. And, and you know, it, it, it had just been sort of overlooked, had it? And yet it brought to an end those shocking, well, it, to part end anyway, those shocking frontier wars of Queensland. Yes, it's a remarkable moment, isn't it? And I wanted to begin my essay with that story of Betty Goringer's marvellous intervention from the back of the room. Um And, you know, but we already had a treaty. It's in Alice's books. And I think there are many other such agreements, negotiated truces and agreements that uh, took place right across Australia that we just haven't discovered or remembered or do, rediscovered. Do, do you now think that, 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 that they exist in a range of places? I think it's very likely. Um, part of the story is that uh, this is only recorded in one written document and Part of my um, responsibility as a historian is to explain why we can take that story uh, as truthful, why its detail is likely to be correct. And so I spend quite a bit of time trying to introduce people to Alice Duncan Kemp and why we can rely on her testimony. Um, but, you know, there were strong reasons why these agreements, negotiated truces, peace treaties, whatever you like to call them, why they were not advertised, because this was an undeclared war. Aboriginal peoples were um, regarded as British subjects and their uh, behaviour was regarded uh, as criminal, not as fighting a heroic war to defend their sovereign lands. You know, So to, in fact, uh, advertise a peace treaty or for a government to be seen to negotiate a peace treaty would have been to acknowledge sovereignty. It would have been to acknowledge a state of war. Well, it was a repudiation so, of terra nullius, wasn't it? That's right. So these, there are very strong reasons why uh, this was kept secret and only um, known amongst those for whom it was vital for survival. And it was a desperate act of survival by Aboriginal peoples to organise this this occasion, this event, and to uh, bring pastoralists into mm. the ceremony, but also important for pastoralists because um, sympathetic pastoralists needed and depended on uh, an Aboriginal workforce, a, a largely free and unpaid and exploited Aboriginal workforce. But without the help of the locals, their economy 
uh, was not going to prevail. Yeah, we're going to come back to that in just a moment, but I would like you to talk, in, in these terrible, this terrible time in Australian history, the frontier wars in Queensland, the Native Mounted Police Force, capitals NMP, um, which Raymond Evans, the historian, has called a counterinsurgency force, operated under the direct control of the Executive Council of the Colonial Administration, and they were effectively deployed as a death squad, weren't they? Run by an Irishman, but with Aboriginal um, people underneath him. Now, that was a—that's really a, a shameful part of our history, is it not? It is. The Queensland frontier was the most brutal frontier in Australia, and it was a later frontier. Um, you know, uh, firearms were more effective, and there was also um, a, a more um, concerted effort, I guess, by the occupying whites to really clear the country. That was the role of the Native Mounted Police. Um, their Aboriginal peoples recruited or conscripted by force from other areas to go out there uh, under leadership uh, from um, white people to uh, kill and chase uh, and massacre. Now, the, the Aboriginal, Aboriginal as point is the Aboriginal people were killing the cattle, um, but they in response, these uh, native forces killed people. I mean, that's the distinction, isn't it? I mean, it was a full, it was a war, wasn't it? It was a war and people spoke about it as a war at the time, uh, but it wasn't an official war, of course, in terms of law or government policy, but uh, those who were out there knew what they were dealing with was a war mm. of extermination. And, and some of them were very disturbed about it and wrote about it and spoke out about it. Yeah, well, let's move the story along now to meet this man, George Leonard Debney. Who was he and what was his contribution? Yes, so this peace ceremony is known, remembered by white pastoralists as the Debney piece because George Debney was a, a tall, charismatic man who'd come to the Channel Country uh, in the early 1880s. He had experience of frontier warfare in northern South Australia. Uh, he became a justice of the peace. He, in the Channel Country, he had a kind of official role as a protector of Aboriginal people, but he was inclined to work with them and to befriend them, and he was himself befriended. So he uh, established a number of strategic friendships with Aboriginal leaders in the district. And together with them, in the late 1880s, uh, they moved towards this peace ceremony. But what was crucial was that they also involve the leadership of the Native Mounted Police, because part of the peace ceremony, the purpose, was to keep them the Native Mounted Police out of the district, because they were engaged in wholesale slaughter and the pastoralists and the Aboriginal peoples wanted to keep them out. They were both terrified, really, of uh, of their murderous power. Well, yes, a lot so, of the whites were, were they, they knew it. And in fact, a lot of the whites forfeited their leases. Uh, that's the interesting part of your research for me anyway. Um, it, it was so awful that they just got up and left. Yeah, well, they were in trouble. You know, white uh, pastoralism was in trouble out there in the 1880s. You know, it was it was tough. The seasons were difficult. The elements were harsh. And there was a war that meant that they were really having trouble. And in order to hang on, they needed Aboriginal advice. They needed to know where the water was, they, when droughts were coming. They needed help in mustering, in looking after stock, in where to site their homesteads. They had their homes cleaned by, you know, these people, these locals. Uh, they, their entire enterprise depended on the unpaid, largely unpaid, labour of Aboriginal people. So uh, 
the if the native police came out and cleared the country and cleared the workforce, that was also against the interests of the white pastoralists. So, look, bringing it to a close then, this peace treaty held by the sound of it and it mattered, it was strong enough. It, it also brought different tribes uh, into it, I gather, and yet it's disappeared from... From history, uh, it's amazing, really, isn't it? I wonder how often this is. Has this has happened? Yes. Well, young Alice Duncan, I admire her so much, you know, and her. The wonderful thing in this work, Geraldine, is that I've been working with uh, descendants of Alice Duncan Kemp, uh, descendants of George Debney, and of course Mythica people today, who are all coming together, and we're all engaged in a really a century-long conversation about rights and meaning in this landscape and working together now to try and um, return stories to to uh, landscape and to places and and to work together in doing that it's, in, it's exhilarating work and uh, it's i think that um, alice duncan's commitment to the mythica teachers who really brought up with a great love of that country it just shines through her writing is there any plaque or anything that we can see to commemorate this not at the moment, but I know Mythica people today are, are keen to um, gather these stories. Um, there are many such stories about uh, their ancient stories as well as more recent ones about the contact period um, and to be able to find a way to bring them to visitors and to the wider public. But this story about the Debney piece is one that they have identified as a really crucial one of national significance. There are Mythica people still there, are there? Because, I mean, that's part of the trouble, I think. Just there were so many, it was a very vital area of Indigenous life and um, was sort of essentially cleared, was it not, of of, um, most Aboriginal people? Yes, well, in spite of the Debney piece, which did bring uh, a truce and a pe- did bring peace, it did diminish the violence. There was, of course, still government removal of Aboriginal people from uh, that from country in the early 20th century. There was the uh, ravages of the influenza pandemic of uh, 1918, 19 and 20. Um, that was devastating, particularly to Aboriginal people. So, um, you know, there was a great loss of um, people and of traditions and of connection to country. But Mythica people hung on however they could and they're still there today and they've renewed their connections through native title. And this story, I think, tells us all that native title, in spite of its difficulties, really works. It really can work in terms of enabling people to access uh, their beloved country again, to strengthen their culture, to renew the stories and to bring their own youth uh, into those traditions, which is what they're doing today. Tom Griffiths, thanks very much indeed for joining us. A great pleasure. Thank you. Tom Griffiths is Emeritus Professor of Australian History at the ANU. And for more on this, head to the latest edition of the Griffith Review called Acts of Reckoning, which is where Tom's essay is. And uh, I might add there's also an exhibition on called Kirinderi, Heart of the Channel Country, about mythica history and culture. It's on at the University of Queensland right now, and it'll be touring regional Australia. So keep your eye out for that. Well, now it's time for The Pick. (music) 
is each month uh, we at Saturday Extra like to give you a guide of what to read and listen to and watch, particularly if we're, as we're heading into colder winter times. Joining us today to share their recommendations are Jonathan Perlman, who's the editor of Australian Foreign Affairs and world editor of the Saturday paper. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hi, Geraldine. And joining him is Justin Burke, who was recently named the Lowy Institute's 2022 Thorley Scholar, and he's bound for Washington, D.C. He's also Program Coordinator for Foreign and Security Policy at the Conrad Adenauer Foundation uh, in Canberra. He's a doctoral candidate at Macquarie University and a former journalist and TV and film critic for The Australian. Goodness. Good morning and welcome, Justin. Good morning, Geraldine. Uh, now, look, just before we get to the fun, I must ask you, Jonathan, about a report that is in the nine papers about a signing of, of a deal. Uh, it's still underway between the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and um, East Timor via, uh, and I think he's meeting today, Shanana Guzmao and Jose Ramos Horta. Um, quite a complex deal. More to come. There's a lot we obviously need to know. Does that surprise you? I mean, I think East Timor, Timor-Leste's relationship with China is quite different to the relationship that other countries in the Pacific have with China. Um, and in some sense, it's not a surprise. Um, China was a strong backer of Timorese independence all the way through the sort of 70s and, and 80s during the um, during the years when Ramos Horta and Janana Guzmao were, were leading the, uh, the the independence movement. And China was very quick to back Timorese independence um, and and has you know strongly backed Timor commercially. It, it built the presidential palace in Dili. Mm. Um, so, of course, Australia has very close ties, much to celebrate in its relationship with Dili and some things maybe to, to, to regret. Um, uh, but China, China has a history of very close relations with Dili and it's not a surprise that it's now, you know, as it's moving around the Pacific, and this is this is Wang Yi's last mm. stop on his ten ten day tour. It's not a surprise to see him, you know, trying to, to trying to ink some more deals. Yes, well, very interesting because they're particularly talking about the Timor Gap facility too, which of course mm. does very much feature in our history. Okay, I just wanted to get that on the record before we go, but let's get to some of the fun now. And there's some fabulous suggestions you both make. You've just finished reading Jonathan The Passenger by Ulrich Boschwitz, B O S C H W I T Z, I presume. This book was first published in 1938, but has only recently been uh, rediscovered. What's that about? Yeah, and this, the story behind this book is almost as incredible as the book. Um, Ulrich Boschwitz was um, a, a Protestant, but his father was Jewish. And he and his mother, his father died in the First World War. He and his mother escaped Germany in the 1930s. And he actually ended up one of being one of the De Niro boys brought to Australia um, oh. and, and, you know, treated terribly on the way over here by the British when, when they brought over a whole lot of German, mainly Jewish refugees um, and, and put them in detention camps in the middle of New South Wales. He went back to England. He was a brilliant young writer. He tried to get back to England and was killed by a German U-boat. He had a manuscript of his, of his sort of next novel tied to his body um, oh. and that was lost. Oh. But recently a German publisher discovered the original manuscript to a book that he'd 
published when he was alive. It's called the now it's been called the Passenger, and it's put together really the version that he had always wanted to produce, and it is really an incredible book. Um, it's it's amazingly prophetic. It's it's written. Um, in the late 1930s, but before the concentration camps had been set up. And it's um, it's about this Jewish man who has sort of left it too late to leave Germany and is now desperately trying to escape. And it's about his journey around Germany as he, as he tries to get out. But it's impossible to read the book without knowing its provenance and without knowing that it was written at the time that it's set. He wrote, he wrote the book in just over a month. And it's got this incredible pace. It's like a thriller. It's sort of been compared to Hitchcock and, and The Fugitive. Um, and it's it's really an amazing sort of contemporary fictional document um, from 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 that terrible time. Wow. Oh, well, I can feel people <laughs> noting that all, all around Australia. Um, I, look, I'll get to Justin now. Uh, you're reading Bates Gill's new book, Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions under Xi Jinping. And that, he's quite the China watcher. He's been a guest on this program, but quite a while ago now. Um, what themes is he exploring, Justin? Yes, look, it's excellent. I, I must say I am full of admiration for Bates. When Bates speaks or Bates writes, uh, I'm listening because invariably it's it's timely and, and relevant information. Uh, he's chosen this moment to, to write this book because uh, it is obviously 10 years of President Xi Jinping's uh, reign in China and we're looking at the National Party Congress this year likely to install him for another third term, uh, something not seen since Mao. So it's a very interesting time to take stock of what's happened and what we can expect. So Bates has kind of scaffolded his discussion around some of the elements that you might expect like leadership, sovereignty, power, wealth, um, but really at the heart of it, and I think the, the thing that was unique for me, is this Chinese desire for legitimacy. So it's this driving uh, mission of the, of the CCP to maintain domestic legitimacy and international legitimacy as well. So he actually begins the book with a quote from a, a scholarly friend in Shanghai, and he asks his friend, you know, what is it that China wants in a sentence? And his friend responds, to be respected in the world and to receive our due, dot, 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 you will have to get used to it. Mm. <laughs> so That's what makes the whole behaviour towards Russia at the moment so interesting. And I mean, a, a lot of people are, are trying to wrestle with that. Absolutely. Look, it couldn't be more relevant with what's happening with this uh, best friends forever uh, relationship mm. with Russia, supposedly, uh, and, and the events in the, in the Pacific Islands this week. It's, it's all very relevant. Um, but I think that, you know, in terms of the, the brittleness of the foreign policy uh, that we see, the, the thin-skinned attitude to any kind of criticism, it's, it's hard for us to understand. But in a sense, uh, for, for the Chinese uh, Communist Party for the leadership, it connects right back to their domestic legitimacy. So they don't brook dissent in China for how they conduct themselves. Uh, and when they hear criticism around the world, for them, it's existential. Mm. And so we, 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 we are kind of um, being ladled with this expectation uh, that we will show them the respect that they, you know, demand and insist on at home. And it's, it's impossible. It's obviously uh, running into our interests, our culture, 
um, and 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 hence the uh, hence the difficulties that we've we've seen in in the last few years. And, and can I just ask quickly: is it something that an average person can read, or do you have to be fascinated? If you know what I mean, and have absolutely, a doctor? Absolutely, absolutely the former. Absolutely okay, the former. Good. So Bates, blessedly, uh, is not interested in methodological debates and IR pitched battles. Right. So <laughs> it's very much written for someone that doesn't pay attention to this stuff every day, but is nonetheless an interested reader. I must say, I'm hoping to interview Professor Kerry Brown, who has has a joint um, uh, academic life between Australia and England. Next week, uh, he's got a new book out too called She, uh, A Study in Power. So I think this is starting to really preoccupy people. And just before I get on to what you've been both listening to, can you tell me about this Conrad Adenauer Foundation that you work for? What does it do, please? Yes, I certainly can. They're a terrific group. Actually, they're, they're among the most uh, highly respected think tanks in the world, if you if you look at some of the think tank rankings. Uh, so it is a German foundation. It's associated with the CDU. Uh, so the German government funds uh, each political party to have their own foundation. Uh, offices across the planet and, uh, you know, involved in all sorts of different policy areas. Very interested in energy, very interested in Pacific Islands, uh, for my part, looking after their foreign and security policy stuff as well. Mm, very interesting. So we, we, we do a lot, of, a lot of explaining Australia's point of view back to Germany. <laughs> okay, now, Jonathan, you've been listening to This American Life. What's a recent episode you've enjoyed? Yes, I'm a regular listener um, and uh, I would like to recommend a recent episode called The Reluctant Explorer. It was aired a couple of weeks ago um, and it's about a tech engineer in the U.S., who suddenly gets an email saying that some little program that he designed five or six years ago and he'd completely forgotten about, he just put this program online, could be worth millions of dollars. And the program was very simple. It just had little coloured tiles and you could buy these tiles using cryptocurrency. And the reason it was believed to be worth so much was that um, it was one of the first examples of, of these sort of NFTs where you can distinctly own something using cryptocurrency. Non-fungible tokens. <laughs> yes, mm. exactly. Um, so he thought it was a spam, but it turned out it was real. Um, and he ended up making millions of dollars out of it um, uh, because people were willing to buy these little tiny coloured tiles for thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, but... What's interesting is that it raises questions around the whole world of cryptocurrency, um, which I think are, you know really interesting and becoming more important because cryptocurrency is such a major part of the economy and, and potentially, um, you know, if it if it were to collapse, it poses real threats to the global financial system these days. It, it, it doesn't um, tempt. It did it not tempt you? Um, did or did it, it um, dissuade you? Put it that way. It, it didn't. Um, it's. Um, I mean, it, it highlight. To me, it highlighted the lunacy of it to some extent. Um, but I have to say, the the engineer who started out as a complete skeptic um, ends up over the course of the the program um, quitting his job and entering full throttle the whole world of of cryptocurrency. Um, so there are believers, and there's you know there's um, there's a, there's a big divide at mm. the moment. But I think it's really it's a fascinating episode, but I think it's a really fascinating issue and I think you know people are paying more and more attention to it now. 
Okay, and now, Justin, you're a submarine expert as well as everything else, and you're currently looking into the differences between the American and Australian submarine experience. Why is that and how has that helped you uh, choose th- something for the pick? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's it's more timely than ever if we are to acquire nuclear-powered submarines because we have been uh, – we had this long experience of conventionally powered, and so I'm, I'm interested in this comparison to the American experience – where they've got nuclear-powered submarines and how has that worked and what can we learn because we, we may indeed be moving more to that model. So uh, in discussions with my American colleagues, they get endless recommendations for things that will help uh, put little puzzle pieces down on the table for me. And one of them is this book, Scorpion Down, by a very dogged uh, you know, military reporter called Ed Offley. So it is about this loss of the USS Scorpion in 1968, and it was lost on the way from the Mediterranean back to Virginia. And the official Navy explanation uh, after you know several inquiries, some of which was public, some of which was not, was that it was an inexplicable accident. Ed Offley has uh, really, you know, so it really appeals to me because as a as a former journalist, I know how hard it is to get submariners to talk. What they do is you know, naturally very secretive. Uh, the technology about how they do it is unbelievably secretive and important. And submariners by nature are very taciturn. Uh, they're, not, they're not big talkers. They're not, uh, they're not big outspoken people. And I've had many doors slammed in my face, as you can well imagine. Uh, Ed Offley likewise, but he maintained this sort of dogged quest. For years. For years and years. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And he's come up with a theory, uh, you know, spoiler alert, he believes that it was attacked by Soviets uh, and sunk by Soviets and covered up to, you know, prevent World War Three from, uh, from breaking me. out. Goodness There are certainly other views out there uh, from, from other submariners about what, what possibly could have happened. But, yeah, we, I guess we don't know. And you're listening to the audio book. Indeed, yes, absolutely. Yep, that's a very good way to do it. It's a very, very charming and very pacey kind of audio book. Uh, again, not scholarly, but very narrative driven. Can I just throw in, I suggest um, The Rest is History, which is a wonderful podcast series with Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. They've just done three programs on Australian Prime Ministers. My goodness, they're enjoyable. It's really fun and very interesting perspective, which I recommend. Now, Justin, keeping on the theme of America, you've also been listening to the American pop star Taylor Swift. In particular, yes, in particular, her, we don't normally have Taylor Swift on the in particularly her album Red, which came out last year. Tell us some of the backstory of this album. Look, I must say, uh, I sat for almost a decade next to the now late uh, but great Ian Shedden, the music editor at The Australian. Ah, yes. He would roll his eyes at my tastes in music, (laughs) and I can imagine he continues to do so somewhere, Um, so I, I stipulate to that fact. Uh, and yes, I have an 11-year-old daughter who's playing guitar and obsessed with Taylor Swift. Yes, maybe we bought the same cat as Taylor Swift. Maybe I think she's this generation's Paul McCartney. Oh, let, let's, just ha- let, let's just have a listen, please, a little <laughs> little burst. I'm here on the kitchen floor. You call, but I won't hear it. You said no one else. How could you do this, Really do this, babe. We 
Okay, I, I think you're slightly overreaching, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, this is the hill I, I will die on. This is the hill you'll die on? All right, well, I'll let you die on that hill then. Thank and look, <laughs> I just... No, look, I, I must say, when, when I listen to Taylor Swift, I, I, I must say it's her industry that impresses me as much as anything else. And during the lockdown uh, period 2020, 2021, uh, I was teaching hundreds of undergraduate students on, on Zoom. It's a really difficult time and motivation was a big issue for people. And Taylor Swift during this period switched genres, recorded two albums, re-recorded two others uh, and released them and uh, as well as all sorts of other videos. And oh, well, that's impressive. I didn't know all that. It was an extraordinarily uh, courageous, creative and productive time for her and I insisted to my students, half of them laughed at me, which is fine, uh, you know, that Taylor Swift is an unbelievable uh, kind of inspiration for how creativity and hard work can happen despite the circumstances. So many artists unable to tour kind of sat and looked at the wall for a year or two. Mm. Uh, Taylor Swift owned it and I think it's, I think it's inspiring. Very good. No, uh, that's I like that. <laughs> like that. Now, Jonathan, very quickly, you're looking forward to the new series of Borgen, which I was totally addicted to. I didn't realise there was a new series coming. Yes. Um, I mean, the first three series aired about 10 years ago, mm. this Danish uh, political drama, um, uh, but it's a, a thrilling drama. Their version and, of Julia uh, Gillard, sort of. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and I think it there was... Excuse me. There was also a um, it was sort of loosely based or even um, predated Denmark's first female prime minister. Mm. Um, but uh, it was an incredible show um, about this unlikely prime minister um, from this tiny party, um, this woman who, who who ends up making it to the top, but then ends up um, having to get her hands very okay. dirty. Um, so yes, the the, the they've. Made now a fourth series ten years later, um, and that has just been released. I just thought it was the whoever wrote the script really knew about politics. I thought it was the best depiction of politics. Uh, So we'll look forward to that. Look, we have to go. I'm afraid, Uh, uh, Jonathan and Justin. Thank you very, very much for your suggestions this uh, this time round. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Dew. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.